It is not good for man to be alone. That is a true, true statement. When Hope and I were uh, engaged, there was a time we were in Chicago together, and she was going to be heading back to Florida to prepare for the wedding. And so she wanted to prepare me for her temporary absence, so she taught me how to make spaghetti. <laughs> because she thought this would be a step up nutritionally from my uh, ramen and microwave burrito diet. Uh, so yeah, spaghetti, definitely step up. So she taught me how to do this. And then she went to Florida. And so she's there and I, I made spaghetti one time. And I was proud of it. I don't remember how it tasted, but I remember I was proud that I actually made spaghetti in the apartment I was living at. And I called her and told her I made spaghetti. And she said, good job. <laughs> and after that, I'm like, I could have made more spaghetti, but I thought, you know, that's, that's a lot of work to make spaghetti. And it takes time. And so I kind of went back to microwave burritos. But after time, the microwave burritos, you know, it's like you got to wait around for the microwave burrito to cook? Who's got that kind of time? So I'm like, i got to simplify things. So I devolved from spaghetti to microwave burritos to I realized, okay, I want something with no cooking required. I'll just eat sandwiches. You know, there's no cooking. You just make it and you can eat it. And so I was down to sandwiches and then realized, you know, sandwiches, kind of a lot of work here. you got to get out bread. You got to get out the sandwich stuff. You know, you got to, you might have a knife you need to clean off later on. That's a lot of work. Uh, so then basically I devolved from that to basically eating sleeves of saltine crackers. We were married before I died of malnutrition. And that was a very good thing. Because as I said, it is not good for a man to be alone. And that is going to be something that we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2. I encourage you to take your copy of God's Word, turn to Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 18. In the section from last week, we saw in chapter 2 what is happening here. It is a flashback to day 6 of creation, going more in-depth. We saw the creation of Adam, that he was placed in the garden that was in Eden in this perfect situation. And up until now, we've seen God say everything is good, but we're going to see that this passage is going to start with him saying there's actually something that's not quite good yet. So let's read together Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and clothed, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now it is Palm Sunday. We are taking the Lord's Supper as well. And if you're thinking, is this a good passage? Does this have anything to do with this week and with Easter week and uh, taking the Lord's Supper? I'll just say it's a mystery. So hang in there. First point that we're going to see as we look at this. First of all, I have to apologize for the shocking nudity of Adam and Eve in this PowerPoint. I know you did not come to church expecting to have your eyes offended like this, but uh, this is this passage. <laughs> Everything was not yet good because the man was incomplete. Adam was alone. So we saw at the beginning of this, it says, Lord, uh, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. We kept seeing in the book of Genesis before this, constantly being said that uh, God created and it was good and it was good. And so it's a shocking thing to see something now where it says it is not good. And what is this? It's not good that it was Adam by himself, that man was alone. So creation was not yet completed. It was not yet perfected because uh, Adam did not have a, a talks about a, a helper that was fit for him. So we see it mentions that and then it talks about Adam naming the animals. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and birds of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So you see uh, Adam doing this, naming all the animals. And again, some people say, well, this, uh, this couldn't have all happened on day six. This would have taken too long. Uh, but Remember, uh, this is saying a few different things that we need to realize, that it's not every life form, okay, so it's not every bacteria and every, it doesn't even mention the sea creatures. It talks about this was beasts of the uh, field and birds of the heaven and the livestock, so it was only some animals, so we get that. Uh, it was not every individual species either, I don't think that was necessary, they were brought to Adam, so God arranged it so they would come by. He didn't have to go out and look for all of these things. And so God had created Adam with language. And so I think Adam already had some of the categories that he would look and he could identify these animals and give them an appropriate name. So this wasn't something where Adam was spending hours on each of these animals uh, analyzing, uh, but it did take some time, and it, the math actually works out that he would have been able uh, to do this. But I think a, a deeper question is, why did God task Adam with naming the animals? And one is that it demonstrates Adam's authority over the animals. Uh, naming indicates uh, that you have uh, authority. And God had given Adam, we saw this, uh, dominion for humanity over the animals. And this is a way of exercising that dominion or that, uh, that authority that has been given. But another thing that we see that Adam that happened during this time is that going through this process, Adam realized that uh, there, he was without a suitable partner. As he looked at these different creatures, and maybe they're coming up with their uh, male and female as well too, and Adam would realize that they, they each had someone, and he's thinking, well, which of these is the most like me? You know, and there's cows going by and different animals. He's thinking, ah, nothing, is really a, nothing is really a perfect fit here. 
And so he, it made him recognize, it made him realize this longing that uh, he needed something else. He needed someone else. When we saw that Adam was created, it said that God breathed into him and he became alive. Adam being created with this, this breath of life. And this is not something that is said of the animals. Uh, that none of them are said to be made with this breath of life. That doesn't mean they're not alive, but there's something more to it. The human beings are in a different category as the animals. And so as much as an animal can be a companion in some ways, and I know many people, have, you have pets, and your dog might be a faithful companion, uh, but I hope that your dog is, you don't realize, eh, just as good as my spouse. Uh, if there is, there's something really wrong there, Okay. And so, I mean, I got my cats at home, but they're not as good as my wife in a whole lot of different ways. Uh, there's something categorically different about uh, this. And Adam, he didn't see anyone that was really like him, that was on the same level, the same capacity uh, that he could uh, relate to and that, that would complete him. So, everything at this point was not good. In, not that everything was bad, it was just incomplete yet because woman had not been created. And so we go to verses 21 and 23. Uh, we see that next, it is the creation of woman that completes God's good creation. So to all the ladies out there, realize it is the creation of you that completed, that dare we say perfected God's creation. Do we want to say he saved the best for last? Do we want to say that man was just the, uh, the rough draft but woman, he finally got it right. Uh, now, there's something to be said about uh, you know, women um, are just uh, a finer creature than men, but we shouldn't think of it as men are just the rough draft. That there's a, Adam was created with a lack that only Eve could fulfill, and, and vice versa. That God's plan for humanity, his plan for what we're going to see is marriage, that it takes a man and a woman together uh, God's plan for us, uh, it wasn't complete until there were both uh, men, males, and women, females in this world. That was God's design. And then finally, when that was the case, things were completed. So last week, we saw that God is a gardener. This week, we see that God is an anesthesiologist because he puts uh, Adam to deep sleep. It says, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So according to this, he actually took one of the, the ribs out of the side of, of Adam. And he took the rib and he fashioned it into, into a woman. Now he would have had to do some miraculous things. Obviously, there's not enough just in, in the bone here. And who knows if he took out you know, some other uh, material as well. But he would have had to and do some miraculous things. Uh, but created Eve out of Adam. And I believe that this is not just a metaphorical thing that happened. I think this was a literal thing that happened, that God took this out of Adam's side. And even you look into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, um, 12 said, for as woman was made from man. And we don't really think that way. We think, well, men, we come from women. Yeah, but first it was woman came from man, from Adam, from his side. But the question we want to ask ourselves is, why did God do it this way? You think of that? That's kind of a strange thing to do. Why didn't, if, 
why didn't God just create woman the same way he created Adam? He took the dirt of the ground and the dust and he created Adam and, and made him. So he needs to make a suitable helper. He could have done the same thing. He could have, okay, let's get some more ground and let's shape it. And okay, now we got woman. And you wouldn't have Adam having to uh, you know, go through what he went through. But I think there's some really important uh, theological reasons and things that God was trying to get across and make true because by creating Eve in this way. And the big thing is that it shows that Eve is of the same nature as Adam. That she's not a different creation. That she is a part of humanity. That she shares the same humanity as does Adam. Because otherwise we could think, okay, there are two separate creations. God creates man, God creates woman, and now you really got the battle of the sexes. Who's really going to be better? Who's superior? You have uh, creation A, creation B, but it's not like that. That all of humanity is connected. All of humanity comes from the same source. We all flow from Adam. And that's why, even though today it's not politically correct to say mankind, because it sounds like it's uh, you know, patriarchal or we're t- focusing on man, uh, biblically it is really accurate because Adam's name literally means man. And so when we talk about mankind, what we mean is Adam-kind. And so we are all part of Adam-kind because we all trace back uh, to Adam and Eve and ultimately to Adam. That he was the first, he was the, uh, the, the head of the human race, And there's a lot of things that are really important about that. His position there uh, representing us and is is the source for the entire human race. So all mankind really is Adam kind. As I said, Eve was of the same nature as Adam. Remember when Adam looks at her, he says, uh, he looks at her and says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's saying, she was taken from me. She was created from me. As uh, Christopher West writes in his book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, he says, we lose this in English, but for the Jews, flesh and bone signified the whole human being. Hence, woman's creation from one of man's bones is a figurative way of expressing that both men and women share the same humanity. It's, figured, it's, it's literal, but it also communicates a figurative truth that, uh, that um, she was created from him and therefore they do share this same humanity. So finally, Adam had someone that was a peer, someone that wasn't uh, just a lower, uh, different type of species, but someone that uh, he could connect with, someone he could relate with, someone he could speak with, someone that was like him. And it's been pointed out, I think it goes back to the Puritan Matthew Henry that also talks about uh, the appropriateness of her being created from uh, Adam's rib that he says, uh, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So Eve was the same nature as Adam. That's really important. They share this physical relationship with each other. But it's also important to realize uh, that Eve was not the same as Adam. Uh, So God did not just clone Adam. He did not make just another male. He did not make an identical thing. He made something that was like Adam, but was also different in significant ways. And God did this on purpose. 
so when Adam saw Eve, you wonder what that's like. He goes to sleep and, you know, he's seen these animals and he wakes up, you know, clears his eyes and he looks and there's Eve standing there in all her glory. And it tells us what Adam said first, you know, but I wonder what was going through his mind first. I think it was probably a long pause as he's taking this all in, probably his jaw dropping to the ground. Um, it made me thought something like, that's better than a gorilla. Uh, <laughs> they said, at last. And so the phrase, at last, he has someone. It hadn't been that long, but he realized there was this longing in him to be completed, that he needed this one that was like him, but also not like him. As the French say, viva la différence. Long live the difference. Uh, that it's, it's good that men and women are not like each other. There's difference between the two. We need to realize today, men and women are not meant to be exactly the same. That God is creating men and women uh, to be complementary to each other. That men and, and uh, a, a husband and a wife are, are not just um, identical copies that are together. There is a reason why we see uh, God creating this away, in a way that you have two human beings that are equal in dignity, value, and worth in the image of God, uh, but also they're different. And we, that's, there's physical reasons for that. There's going to be things that are related to uh, reproduction and how this works. But, you know, God could have made it so that we didn't need to have a husband and a wife to reproduce, a male and a female. You know, he could have made it so we split in half like amoebas, you know, or you just, you just bud a small human being off your side and, and there you go. Uh, but God designed us in such a way that it's a, a man and a woman, a male and a female, have to come together. And even as much as today people are trying to get away from that or pretend that's not how it is, every human being still is because of a, a man and a woman coming together some way, somehow, to produce a new human being. So men and women, they're not meant to be exactly the same, both physically but there's other ways too. Um, and we don't want to overdo this. Okay, we don't want to fall into stereotypes either, but there are distinctions that as far as uh, just how men and women tend to view life differently. Perception, there's different uh, emotional capabilities, attitudes, skills, dare I say even roles, that, we're, that there's aptitudes for these things. I think that's why in the ideal situation, a child grows up with a mom and a dad because each are bringing different strengths to the table for those kids. That, um, and again, there can be overlap. Again, we don't want to overdo it. We're not saying that men and women are completely different. We're part of humanity. But there are different strengths that are brought together. And it's good that in God's design, they're both. We talk about men and women being complementary to each other. And that doesn't mean just comp- giving a compliment, again, to say, like, that's a nice dress, but to mean you, we can, we're different, but we complete each other. Think of it like two puzzle pieces that connect to each other. So the puzzle pieces, uh, it's the same puzzle, they're the same, you know, basic thing, but they fit together in a certain way. And yeah, to be, well, that is true physically. There's some anatomy issues here, too. I'm not going to get deep into that, but yeah, that is part of it. But there's also other issues too, spiritually, emotionally, all these things that men and women are made to complete each other. And this means that um, there are ways that the man needs the woman, the woman uh, 
needs of man, they come together with their unique strengths and abilities. And they, yes, they are physically designed, oriented for each other. And so even though it is not in God's plan for every single woman and every single man to, to get married and reproduce, and we need to make sure we're echoing that. So we're not uh, presenting this message in a way that says that uh, if you're not married yet or if you're never married or you're not married at this point, that uh, there's something wrong, okay? And we're, when we get to the end, I hope that you really see this. But it does mean that every man is physically designed to engage with a woman, and every woman is physically designed to engage with a man. You know, and we live in a society now that we view our, our view of self based on our inner feelings instead of external things that are objective and true. And so that's why some people, you know, feel that they have an orientation uh, that w- would be counter to God's design. But I want to say, think about what is your body oriented to? And so if this is something that you do struggle with, just recognize first and foremost that bodily, if you are a male, you are bodily oriented towards a woman, and if you are a woman, you are bodily oriented towards a man to complete each other. God had told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and they couldn't do it by themselves. Neither of them had a complete reproductive ability, reproductive system. They had to combine together in order for this to happen. One thing I want to point out too and we'll be able to talk more about some of these things in uh, future messages. But it talked about Eve as being a helper that was fit for Adam. That uh, she was uh, designed for him. That she was a good match for him, corresponding to him. But also when it talks about her being a helper, and it does talk about Eve being the helper for Adam, not the other way around. Uh, but realize that this word for helper is not a demeaning thing. That this same word is used many times in Scripture where God is the one that is the helper. So even if there are distinct roles that God has designed for men and women uh, in the family and in the home, that doesn't mean that it is uh, this issue of one being uh, dominant and abusive. We're going to see that comes later on. There's the fall introduces uh, not the differences or the different roles, but it, the abuse of those different things. That is what is because of sin. But right now, we are in Genesis 2, not Genesis 3. This is still God's good and ideal situation. So Adam names her woman and because uh, she came out of man. And in uh, Hebrew, the words sound alike as well. It's kind of uh, built one from the other. So we see that it was not good at first. Adam was alone. He was, he was uh, solitary. He was incomplete. God now creates Eve. He creates woman who created, completed uh, God's good creation. So now we have the point, finally, in uh, day six of creation uh, where after this, is when, when God rests. Because now, with the creation of Eve, the creation of woman, is when things are, are finally perfected. Things are finally complete. And it wouldn't have been the case otherwise. Finally, we see that God is the author of marriage. That God is the one that designed marriage. We need to keep this in mind. Because so many people today view marriage as just a human construct 
And if it's something that we came up with, then sure, if you want to redesign marriage, what it is, then why not? And if you view marriage as just some kind of a human contract, well, you can write the contract however you want to do it. I have stories in different places that have experimented with making marriage like a, a, a seven-year arrangement, and after that it expires. That sounds horrible. Uh, but if God is the one that is the ultimate designer of marriage, then we have to look to how did he design it? How did he intend it to be? And we say, well, is this actually a marriage? You know, because we see an actual marriage ceremony. Well, God does bring Eve to Adam. It's like he's walking her down the aisle, so to speak. But it's not as much about the ceremony, but I think we can see here that this is a marriage and we can know that because Jesus looked to this as a marriage. That when Jesus is... uh, talking about marriage, he's talking about the Pharisees, he looks back to this and refers to it as marriage and refers to it as the prototype of marriage. I know in this series in Genesis so far, we've quoted this passage so many times in Matthew 19, uh, both to demonstrate that Jesus saw this as actual history and actually that it happened. I think we need to look at it one more time just to remind ourselves that this is Jesus's view too. This isn't taking just some obscure Old Testament passage and putting our ideas into it. Jesus looks back to this as the the prototype, the design of marriage. And so in Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And we saw that, that was in Genesis 1. And said, quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So at this point, Jesus is quoting Genesis uh, chapter 2, here, verse 24. He's going back to the beginning, saying, This is God's design for marriage that it is one man, one male, and one woman, one female. It's not any other combination, and they're coming together. And it's meant to be a lifelong union, as long as both of them shall live. And that's why we say that in the, in the marriage ceremonies, as long as you both shall live or until death do you part. That's the way it's at least supposed to be. Now, we know we live in a sinful, in a world that has fallen and things that relationships that don't go the way that they, they ought to, but that is, that is what God's ideal is for this. And that's why Jesus says, so they are no longer two but one flesh, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I want to point out from this that marriage is an institution designed by God to benefit all humanity. Let me say that again. Marriage is an institution designed by God given to benefit all humanity. So if I asked you, is marriage a Christian institution? We might say, well, yeah, it is, and we should have Christian marriages. But you know what? It's not just Christians that have, like, real marriages in the eyes of God. And so in the Old Testament, they have marriages. But even non-Christians, if it's a legitimate combination of a man and a woman uh, that come together, that God views that as a legitimate marriage. And so the New Testament, it refers to people that were married before they even came to uh, become Christians, 
And this is where it's a matter of God's common grace that he, he created the world and he set it up this way for a man and a woman to, to come together in marriage because it was created by God and Christians, we're going to see, are able to understand the depth of it in a way that we can't without Jesus Christ. But non-Christian marriages are still real marriages. And it is still God that is the one that is joining them together if it fits the, still the legitimate formula for a marriage of a man and a woman together. So it's for the good of society. And there's so many ways. And sociologists know this. People, depending whether their political party is more red or blue, they actually know this. And this is what they want for their kids. Uh, sociologically, uh, we know that there's so many benefits that come from this for the, the health of kids. Uh, if you wanted to fight poverty for people, this would be one of the best ways to do it is to encourage a strong marriage culture where people get married before engaging in sexual activity where a child might come from this. Marriage is good for men. It socializes them. It causes them to take responsibility. Marriage protects women from predatory men that would just go around doing what they wanted to without having to take responsibility uh, for that woman that they may be leaving with a child. That's wrong to be doing that. If you want to be engaged in that, you get married first. You take that, that pledge. You make that covenant commitment before God and before the community. It's not just meant to be a private thing. So people wonder sometimes, is, if uh, just a man and a woman just by himself, if they decide that they're married before God, is that good enough? Say, no. Well, at this point, you know, God's the only one that's around, but it is meant for society as well, that it gives cohesion, it gives, um, it's a pledge before society that uh, a man and woman are going to uh, be there for each other and along with any children that may come from their union. And therefore, it also ultimately is good for the children to provide them with the ability um, to hopefully grow up with, with mom and dad and to be in that environment. So it says in this passage, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. So we see here that there is something to be said that, uh, you know, this is pointing ahead at this point with Adam, you know, he didn't, there was not a mother-father to, to leave, but it's saying this is going to be the pattern of what happens with this. So this wasn't just for Adam and Eve, it's setting this up for the future. But when a marriage takes place, it is establishing a new household. And so even if the Children, you know, the people that are married are still, you know, living at the, the home. And in, a lot of times in Hebrew culture, you know, they didn't necessarily go, you know, buy their new duplex, you know, uh, down the road. Uh, but it did mean that there was a new family unit. And so the husband of this new family unit is now the, the head of, uh, of this household. And it says they shall hold fast. He shall hold fast to his wife. Some translations to, to cleave. You leave and you, you cleave to your wife. And they become one flesh. And this is talking about, yeah, both a sexual and emotional, and I would say a spiritual unity, a union that happens as well. That the sexual union consummates the marriage. It's when it finally is completed that it is part of this. And I think we have to realize that's part of the reason why 
as Bible-believing Christians, uh, it would be improper to, I believe, go to a, uh, even if it's legal, uh, a, a wedding, or suppose a wedding between two men or two women. Because it's not just saying that I affirm their friendship together, that there is a sexual component that is, is part of this and is always understood. And marriage, societies have always understood that when two people are married, they have the right to that type of intimacy together. And so to approve of those type of marriages is to approve of that type of sexual activity. You can't separate these things from each other. The union is not merely a physical act. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6.16. Paul writes this. He's talking to the Corinthians and saying, you know, you can't be like visiting prostitutes. He says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Quoting again to Genesis. So saying even when there isn't that commitment, even when there isn't that, that covenant, that there's something about this relationship that bonds two people together, not just in a physical way, but in, a, in an emotional way. Now I say that doesn't mean that they're married because there's no covenant there. But there's some entanglement that makes it so difficult then to, uh, to just break up at that point. And that's why people that want to say, well, we should just be able to have, uh, just to be doing that activity for, for just fun and partner to partner, ends up tearing out their, their spirit, their soul in so many ways. Because they're doing something that's meant to be like super gluing themselves together permanently to another person. And instead, uh, creating that bond and then ripping it apart, creating that bond and then ripping it apart. That's not how it's meant to be. It's meant to be a lifelong union with two people coming together. But we see here that sexuality is, is not a dirty thing. It's actually created by God. But sin, abuse, pornography, all these things pervert it, twist it, and take what would, should be God's good design and made it into something and that's the tragedy of it because it's something that God has intended to be so pure, so beautiful, so intimate, and so important and made it into something that's so selfish and that's the tragedy of it. But we see here, verse 25, it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now in Genesis 3, we're going to see more of what this means because there comes a time after sin comes into the world where they are ashamed. They feel guilt they want to run and hide. But at this point, it's not like that. And it's not just because they were husband and wife and they were alone with each other. Well, that's probably something to do with it. But remember, at this point, everything is sinless. Everything is good. And I think their nakedness, it was literal, but it also indicated something. That their nakedness without shame demonstrates I think that the first couple, they understood their own goodness. That they had nothing to hide. Now for us to, to know our own goodness, that would be a weird thing because we are sinners. And we know that on this side of Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, we all come into this world infected with sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need his salvation. That's why we need him to go to the cross for us. And so it's strange for us to think of our own goodness. But Adam and Eve, they were good. And I think they knew it. And they knew that they had nothing to be embarrassed about. 
There was no uh, shame. There was no guilt. There was no fear of exploitation. And all of these things that uh, happen today that will change later on when sin enters the world. But right now, they're at this place without sin, without shame. And things are good. Well, we could dive so uh, far into all of these things. But one thing I want to point out, when you look at Scripture, when you see it from, right now we're at the beginning. I mean, we are in uh, Genesis chapter 1. I'm basically barely off the first page of my, my Bible here. But you go all the way to the end, to the book of Revelation. And you see that marriage is throughout Scripture. And really it is bookended by marriage, by this idea. Is that just a coincidence? Or is God communicating something to us in this? The Bible, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, is about marriage. And the marriage of Adam and Eve is the first one, but it's not the ultimate marriage. It points ahead to an even greater and even even deeper marriage that is going to come. And the wedding supper that is talked about in Revelation 19. Let me read this to you. This is Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Listen, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright, and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is the Son of God. The Lamb is the one that was sacrificed for us to take away our sins. The one who came and said of him, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of this world. And as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're thinking that is what Jesus came and he did for us. Uh, that this one, the ultimate husband, is also the Lamb that was sacrificed, that was slain, so that the bride could make herself ready, so that there could be a bride. I want to say again a word to singles. Singleness does not mean aloneness. There is a difference. And Christ was single his whole life. We need to recognize that. He never had sexual relations. And as much as the world says that sexual relations are essential to be a fulfilled, genuine human being, that's not the case, or else Jesus Christ wasn't. And you are not left out. Because the true marriage, the, the most important marriage, the ultimate marriage, and the most permanent marriage is the one to be a part of. And it's the one that you are invited to in Jesus Christ. And it's the one that you can belong to and be a part of for all eternity. It's the marriage that all these other things point to. 
If you're saying, well, who is this bride? Who is the bride of the Lamb? Who is the bride of Christ? If you have your scripture, last passage we're going to read, I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians. I told you this is a mystery. I'm going to reveal the mystery to you here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. We'll read through 33. What we're going to see is the marriage of Adam and Eve points to Christ and the church. Not the church as a building, not the church as just names on a roll, but with the people that belong to him. First, chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church, which is all believers everywhere, submits to Christ, so also women should, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, okay, that sounds, um, I have to hold our sermon to unpack that. Um, We're talking about with Christ, but what kind of husband is this? What kind of submission is this? But look at the husband that's talking about, the husband that men here are called to be like. And the true ultimate husband that all of us have in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. That's what husbands should be doing for their uh, literal husbands, for their literal wives. Uh, serving, protecting, being Christ-like. Verse 30, because we are members of his body. And then it quotes, going back again to Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. told you it was a mystery. Mystery doesn't mean something mysterious. It means that there was a truth that was hidden, that from the very beginning, In creation, this was a truth that was embedded there. It was hidden. It was planned from the beginning. And now in Ephesians, Paul is saying, he's pulling the cover back and saying, this is what it was about all along. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife and himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, how we think about the week coming up, we think about... Uh, Palm Sunday that we have. Jesus Christ going to Jerusalem. And ultimately, why is he going to be crowned king at this point? No, he's going to lay his life down for his bride, for the church, for all those throughout time that he knows will come to him, that he has appointed, invited and appointed that will come to him. And it says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's what Jesus Christ did. And so when he gave the first communion, 
he was saying, remember what I'm going to be doing, that I'm giving my body for you. I am giving my blood for you. And as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, that's what we're doing, remembering our husband that loved you so much that he wanted to, to marry you for eternity. That he was preparing a bride and the only way he could do it was by his sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins. And so he went to the cross and he rose again and he calls you to him. And if you respond to that, trusting in him, you're part of that bride, you're part of that church, and you know that he died for you, taking away your sins and giving you eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this account of Adam and Eve, for how it shows your design for this world, for creation, for men and women, husbands and wives. And Lord, even more right now, we thank you that it is designed from the beginning as a picture of Christ and the church. The church created by Christ. Christ giving himself, dying for the church because he loves us so much. And so Lord, as we worship you, Lord, as we think about you, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, and as we prepare for uh, this week to come, culminating in Easter, Lord, let us remember Jesus Christ, the one who loved the church and gave himself up for her. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.